Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Broadcasting from WLCB. So I'm your host, Doris Nagel, because I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself, and I love helping entrepreneurs. I've counseled a bunch of startups and small businesses and started or helped at least nine different startups, candidly with varying degrees of success. I made money, lost money, and made plenty of mistakes. My passion is sharing what I've learned and finding other experts to also share their advice and insights. Anybody who has comments or questions, suggestions, ideas, you want to be a guest on the show, you have challenges you're dealing with, be sure to email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. And with that, I'd like to bring on our guest for today. Hang on just a sec while I get him on the phone. Hey there, Tom, do I have you? Dorothy, do you hear me? Yes. So, Tom, now that I have you, I want to do a proper introduction to all of our listeners. Tom Cox, who was very gracious to be with us today, is a very knowledgeable and, if I say so myself, a very entertaining lawyer who's a partner (laughs) at the Chicago law firm of McCarthy Duffy. McCarthy Duffy is a business-focused law firm based in Chicago Their private investment practice focuses on privately held growth-oriented businesses and their investors. And their partners have served as attorneys, investors, entrepreneurs, and business owners. And, Tom, I think you've pretty much been all of those. Uh, Exactly. It's the ultimate nonlinear career. Absolutely. Well, I believe in tacking through life, for those of you who are sailors. (laughs) um, I have definitely tacked through my life. So Tom's practice at McCarthy Duffy focuses on early and growth stage companies in the initial organizational structure and shareholder activities and board members, along with equity incentive plan developments and general corporate. And from the description you sent me, Tom, pretty much whatever needs doing. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of our clients look at us as, as I said, the part-time outside general counsel so it is uh, it is whatever needs to be done to support uh, the needs of the business with a good a good healthy focus on transactional work which tends to be early stage financing and some uh, merger and acquisition activities too well so as i was saying tom's done a bunch of different things it's not like he's been a lawyer working in a law firm all of his life far from it before McCarthy Duffy, he was the managing director of three different private investment funds. He was the CEO of a private equity-owned distributor of home medical supplies, a senior exec with a venture-backed provider of healthcare software and services, and a general manager and an attorney with Baxter Healthcare Corporation, which, by the way, is where I met Tom. So just a heads up. You, you may hear a level of familiarity and, and general silliness that you may not with some of my other guests, and that's why. 
And another thing Tom and I share is uh, we both started out our legal careers at Sidley Austin, a fine, fine law firm downtown in Chicago, one of the largest still in the world, I think. Tom is a graduate of Williams College, and he has his law degree from Boston College, as well as an MBA from the Keller Graduate School at Northwestern University. So today, although we could, and well, I don't know, maybe we will, Tom, it's hard to say, some <laughs> of our conversations are pretty nonlinear, we'll talk about a lot of legalish things related to entrepreneurship. Our focus today is really on founder shares. So to kick things off, uh, let's just talk about what what are shares anyway. I mean, yeah. you know, lawyers talk yeah. about shares. I inherited a hundred shares of General Electric from my dad. What the heck's a share? <laughs> Very good questions. And 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 shares we'll use as a as a marker for any sort of ownership interest in any sort of company. So. We work with a lot of entrepreneurs, Doris, and, and their first mission in life is I want to. I have an idea for a product or service. I want to start a business, and to do so, I, I believe I need to have a company in which I operate my business, and all, all of that makes good logical sense. And again, we we really like working with entrepreneurs. It's it's great fun. And the first thing in terms of setting up a business is who is going to own the business. So as you go through the process of of filling out the paperwork, et cetera, for the, um, for the state for establishing the, the corporation or the limited liability company. The first thing, again, that comes out is, who, well, who will own the business and, therefore, who will get the evidence of that ownership? And those are really what are the founder shares. So uh, the, the entrepreneur or if it's, a, if it's a team will ultimately say, we want to set up a business. We each want to own X percent uh, of the business. If it's obviously a single person, it will be, 100 percent, and then that 100 percent is reflected in in uh, shares, and, and so shares are are sort of a marker of ownership. Is is a simple way to put it. Well, so one of my next questions was, does every company need to have shares? Yeah, I think I think the answer is is yes, which is to say every company needs to have owners, and the way that ownership is measured, and the ownership is important for the purpose of determining who gets what proceeds from the company, uh, you know, when the company sells or if the company makes distributions. So shares or, again, this measure of ownership is, I think, critical for the purpose of determining those basic elements. And the other part of what shares end up doing, and and this is, you know, not, not rocket science, but especially if the company has more than one owner. So, again, let's say an entrepreneur goes into business with uh, two colleagues who share the same dreams and visions, the, the, the ownership of the company will be divided in some way that they agree on. And that ownership, so the number of shares that they end up with, will also help to determine how the company is controlled or managed. So you know, in a company where the, the inventor of a particular widget says, I'm going to set up this company, but I want to have two other colleagues who are good at sales and marketing to join me, the inventor may say, I own 70% of the shares. My other colleagues each own 15%, so it adds up to 100. And that, in some ways, not always, but in some ways helps to determine who has the authority to make decisions within that business. So yeah. I think having shares or, again, some, some marker of ownership in, in limited liability companies, they're called 
membership interests or units of membership interest, but it's all the same, is important for those kind of two fundamental reasons. One is economic and one is, is governance. So you talked about different names that you can have for shares and some that you'll, you might read about when you, you know, you're listening to the news or reading, reading the newspaper, which I guess some people still do these days. Um, <laughs> you know, you hear people talk about preferred shares and founder shares, class A shares, class B shares, other things. Are these terms of art that have specific meanings? That's a that's a great question, and the answer is they are they are somewhat terms of art. They have different meanings in terms of they have different rights and privileges sometimes compared to other types of shares. So, for uh, we work again with a number of, of entrepreneurial companies, and many of them are are going out to raise their first round of capital. You, know, you and I have. I've spent time on, on a, a few opportunities like this in the past. And the capital, depending upon who it comes from or what organization it comes from, can, can take the form of a purchase of special shares, of shares that have more rights and more privileges than the founder's shares. And I say that in the context of the founder's shares are often what are referred to as common shares. And you made a good mention of preferred shares. So the, the, the states all over the country and in each company, uh, whether it's a corporation or a limited liability company, needs to be organized in a specific state. The states all allow for the companies, which is to say the owners, back to your point of you know the shareholders, to decide what types of shares they can issue and what types of shares they can offer to themselves or to other investors and what types of rights those shares have. There are certain limits, and, and states are often careful about situations where, for instance, shares don't have, in, in all situations, don't have voting rights. So in some cases, state law will say you, the shareholders have to have rights to do this, that, and the other thing. It, you know, it can't just be uh, purely passive. But the, the, there are different flavors of shares. Again, most cases, founder shares are common. But there are many levels of, of uh, common shares, and there are many, many levels of preferred shares, which are typically tied to financings of, uh, of early-stage companies. Does that uh, sound like a reasonable answer to your well, question? It, it does, although it kind of makes my head explode. So, um, <laughs> well, Part I, of my goal, I, though. I think there's, <laughs> I think there's a – you're just, you're just trying to wow people with the lawyer's speak. Um, <laughs> but – I, I think if I if I understand you right, you have to form a corporation in a state. You can't just say I'm a federal corporation. You have to have a state, and different states, depending on the state you're living in or the state you decide to form your company, and you need to look at the specific laws that may tell you specific things that you have to do depending on what kind of shares or what you want to do with your company. I think one of the, the problems is or challenges is that there are so many different kinds of companies and so many different situations that it's hard to talk about it hypothetically. I think Is that fair? Yeah, I think it is. And, and, and uh, two comments on that is the states all have slightly different laws, but they are, they are largely the same. You know, we, and, and with all due respect to any of your California listeners, we, we sometimes tell people that they might avoid California 
it has more shareholder rights than than some other states, you know, in terms of corporate rights. And and I'm also a little reticent on Louisiana, where there are still some vestiges of the Napoleonic Code that float around. But most states' laws are are pretty similar. And and most types of companies or most companies that we we end up working with, especially if they're they're brand new businesses. We work a lot, for instance, with a university here in town who has a number of professors or faculty members who invent different things. And the the university says, look, you know, if you want to take this further, you need to spin out and, and set up a company and, uh, you know, create a license agreement with us and go raise shares or go raise capital. But most of the companies we deal with come in two flavors. And again, there's a corporation, which is the one you mentioned. And then there's a uh, you know what's referred to as a limited liability company, which is a slightly different flavor of a of a company, uh, different different, uh, you know, reasonably different from a structural standpoint from a corporation, but has for early stage businesses and sometimes even for later stage ones some significant tax benefits. And again, states have mildly different rules about how those entities are set up. But in most cases, you know, just to try to help people's people's heads stop spinning state laws are are reasonably the same and you know we talk about two different types of of entities one is a corporation and one is a limited liability company Uh, well thank you for that i think that's helpful so when you're you're starting a company and you've got different people who probably have some interest Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there are, there are a fair number of companies. I've certainly had a couple myself, but it was just me, myself, and I. So that's really easy. There's founder shares, and there's never going to be anything more than founder shares because it's just me, myself, and that's it. And that's all my company's ever going to be. So that's so. Let's say you've got a small group of people, and okay. they want to. They've got an idea, and they want to form a company. But not everybody maybe has contributed equally. So how would you go about maybe some of the considerations to think about? Maybe somebody had the original idea and somebody else is a software developer who has written some code and somebody else has put some cash in. How how would you go about, what are the things you might think about in terms of figuring out who gets what, at least just to start with? That's a that's a tremendous question, and the short answer is that takes thought. And so, two two things. One is it's important to think about those issues early on when your group of founders is at its most optimistic and, and probably most collegial. So, you know, some of these situations <laughs> yeah. will sound like you know this is the this is the company equivalent of a prenuptial agreement, right? So, you know, coming coming with with a, a clear understanding of how to do those allocations you mentioned, Doris, is is really important. And and the second is that things change, and I think you have to reflect the fact that there are different stages companies go through, and the founders, particularly if there are you know, more than one, as you said, will end up in different roles and have different contributions depending upon where the company is. Right. So, or depending uh, on their personal situation. Yes, that's exactly right. That's a, that, is, that is a great point. And so I, I tell people, I said, look, there's, there's three things people contribute to a company. They contribute 
their idea, their brain power, their technology. Sometimes they have a patent around something. So that might be something, you know, the, the novel concept about the business. The second is people will contribute time. And I think that's kind of where you were going is time allocations can be different. And obviously the third and perhaps most important thing people can contribute is, is capital, right? They can, they can write checks. So deciding how the ownership is divided in relationship to those three types of contributions is, is hard. I mean, it takes some, again, it takes some thought. It takes some compromise. It takes people agreeing on valuing different things relative to each other. And I would say most importantly, so to the, the second point I was mentioning is over time, people's interests will change. And people's time, if, if you're giving somebody a chunk of these founder shares based upon the fact that they're going to spend 70 hours a week working on this business, you know, and, and, and somebody says, wow, I've discovered my heart's passion is, uh, you know, working with uh, indigenous tribes people in Fiji or something. I'm making this up. But, but in that situation, again, people's commitments to the business will change. And whether they're capital commitments or whether they're time commitments, in some cases, even whether they're technology commitments. And so one of the things that we recommend that all, and this is, this is endorsing, this is, these are companies who have a vision of creating value and ultimately monetizing that value. So maybe different from somebody who says, I'm going to create the greatest house painting business in the world and I'm going to run this till I retire and then I'm going to hand it off to my kids. Most of the clients we deal with are companies where the goal is to achieve certain milestones, generate progress, make certain things happen, and then either sell the company or go public. So assuming that's the case, for the companies, again, with a sort of a capital gains goal, a goal of monetizing their efforts here, what we typically recommend, to your point about how to how to allocate and divide equity at the, at the get-go, at the startup, is that all of the founders, and the founders do this with the company, so it's, it's a little unusual because the founders are negotiating with themselves as the company, but they actually enter into an agreement where the agreement indicates that the shares they are getting, these founder shares, which are incredibly valuable, by the way, uh, as, as the company grows, these founder shares are subject to recapture or repurchase by the company if something changes. We've had a handful of situations, and fewer and fewer over time, but to the point of the Fiji you know, sort of move of a, of a founder, where a company generates a huge allocation of shares to an individual who leaves, and who leaves to do something completely different. And unless you have this structure in place where those shares can come back to the company, you now have a huge amount of the ownership of the business in the hands of someone who's not contributing to the value of the business. Yeah, and that's a bad outcome. I'm sure you've got some stories here. And one that I know of was a an automotive and, I guess, truck painting company. Sure. And there were two owners, and one of them suddenly passed away. And his half of the company, or whatever percentage he went to... His wife, because right, she, she who is now suddenly the shares, the, and now she's right. so, she, she's driving everybody crazy. <laughs> I would love it to be the other way around that the woman was running everything and it was right. the husband that was mucking things about. But in this case, it really was the wife 
who was making all kinds of decisions in the business and driving everyone crazy. And yeah. so they never they never planned for that. And, and it, it's, it's a reasonably simple thing to plan for. It's it's a great point, and I have seen stories like that where, you know, again, in in the hands of a – we're actually working with one client now where one of the major shareholders was a husband and wife team who are, who are no longer husband and wife. And, and so similar dynamic, right, which is, all right, A, how do you allocate those interests between the husband and wife? Well, the, the divorce proceedings take some of that into account. But, but B, what does that do to your ownership and control and the voting interests that the different parties have? And so, it, it's you know, to your point, it's having a little bit or spending a little bit of, of energy up front figuring out what happens in those situations. And, you know, again, they've happened all the time, so there are document contingencies that can work their way through many of those is, um, is really worthwhile, in my opinion. So you got to have a story or two of the hindsight being twenty twenty and people looking back and going, "Oh my goodness, what have we done?" <laughs> I, I, you know, I did work with one company, and unfortunately, there. Are, this is probably more common than not. Where many, many businesses, we, we work with a number of, of technology-based startups or early-stage companies, and and in the perfect world, the company is a combination of someone who brings the technological know-how to the business and someone else, a second partner, who brings management skills, executive talent, fundraising skills, leadership skills, business development skills. So a combination of of technical and business, if you will. And a lot lot of times, if, um, if you can find that right combination, that ends up speeding the development process of the company significantly. Yeah. Again, it's not not to say that it's always the case, but that's that's a uh, that's a an often a good recipe, if you will. So, so we work with a couple. I'm going to jump in here yep. for just a second. Yep. We need to take a quick break for station identification and a word Excellent. from a couple of our sponsors. So hold that thought. We'll I will do be so. Right back with Tom Cox here on the Savvy Entrepreneur. All right, we are back live with the Savvy Entrepreneur and our guest, Tom Cox, who's a partner at McCarthy Duffy, a law firm downtown specializing in small business law. So, Tom, you were before we took our station break, you were in the middle of telling me a story about what can happen if you don't think through the the founder's shares and the allocation properly. So, so the stories all have common flavors, if you will, but this is a situation where the technical uh, entrepreneur the, or the technology-oriented entrepreneur had identified who he thought was a was a really good executive partner in which to launch this this uh, technology business and initiative. And it turned out, you know, over time, they ended up realizing they were not really going to be good partners and, uh, in fact, you know, came to the point of, of really disliking working with each other and, you know, sort of the, the the, the divorce situation or divorce analogy probably becomes more apropos. In any event, the technology founder then sort of went back to look on a couple things. One was what happened to these shares, and two, what could he do to find a way to take this technology and move it forward independent of his former management partner, if you will, or his partner with executive skills. You know, and, and the short answer was, you know, there were some things in place that were helpful, some things that were not. 
And ultimately, you say, well, I'm just going to restart the company and take the technology and put it into this new company. Well, of course, he had he had already contributed that technology to his his company with his partner, and his partner did not take this particularly well. Oh, no. um, and uh, his partner ended up uh, bringing on board his own attorney. And the long and the short of it was that the you know, particularly sad outcome of this was that you know, effectively the company folded up and the technology, which was licensed from a university into this business, the license effectively reverted to the to the university, huh. and you know, I'm sure they're trying to find a, a new home for it. So it, it's so all that's that, probably the all worst. All that effort, yeah, it, yeah, and it, and it really was, was a lot for, of it. All for nothing. It all had to be written and, off. And all and again. Fact, and in fact, worse because it sounds like a bunch of attorneys got got wealthier as a result of this. <laughs> Hey, I'm an attorney too. I mean, I think there's a place right. for attorneys, yeah. but unfortunately, yeah. those kind of disputes are, unless you love litigation, which is not you or me, I think, we'd certainly rather they spent their money up front and not in that kind of situation. No, that's a, that's a great point. And, and I, you know, the, the flip side is, you know, as an attorney, and this is, this is I'm sure, not where you wanted to go down, but the, <laughs> the challenges of figuring out who your client is at that point in time become really interesting because... In all cases that we work with, we're approached by entrepreneurs, and again, more than one, and they say we're going to form a company. And I, you know, unless one individual owns 95% of the business, which doesn't always happen or doesn't often happen, I say, look, guys, just recognize that my loyalty as an attorney is to the company. And if you guys have issues with each other, we can try to mediate them, if you will, but we certainly can't represent one shareholder against another. And, yeah, and, I, you and know, sometimes that's, people that's, get that. That's tough because yes. when you're a yes. startup, a lot of times you basically have to tell them, well, look, you need to get advice on your own personal situation, but you know, who has the money? You know, let's say there's three or four people, they'll kind of look at you like you're, you're goofy if you. No, it, it's hey, yeah. Go, you're, 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 you're hire your own right. lawyers, you know. Right, <laughs> right, right, and it happens. I mean, I, in fact, one of my my partners at at the firm is is working through a the exact same concept of a a divorce, if you will, between two partners in a in a real estate venture. One of whom was sort of the finance guy, and one of whom was the uh, the worker bee, if you will. And he's sort of waiting to work through that divorce before he can figure out how to represent one party and looking at and opportunities that the other party might also be interested in. So it's it gets uh, gets complicated. It, it does. You know, having lived through this on a personal basis, you make a point I think it could be worth emphasizing, which is that you need to be very careful about who you actually go into business with. I see this a lot. I It's happened to me. You're talking with a couple of friends, and you're thinking, wouldn't this be neat? And what a great idea, and you're going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and, you know, off you go. But really not much thought put into whether the friends or colleagues have the right combination of business skills, whether they have the same desire to work in the business, the right funding, the right mindset about who's going to do what and make decisions, which you alluded to. So it's certainly something to think about because there's been... Well, let's just say if you, going into business together is a, is a good way to lose a friend <laughs> if you're not <laughs> careful, I think. 
it's a it's a tremendous point, and probably the adjunct to to your comment, which is which is a really good one, and you know, sort of addition to reflecting on what are the right sets of of skills to take this common vision forward in the form of a business is that those skills which are important at the at the early stage or the startup stage, you know, either become less important or different sets of skills are required at the point that you reach, you know, you sort of pass the launch phase, if you will, and you're generating revenues and you're worried about cash flow and things like that. In, in many cases, and I know you've seen this, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting challenge, interesting with quotes, to work with entrepreneurs who have been successful in building a business. And let's say for sake of example, they take the business up to generating $10 million in revenues, and I'm making these numbers up. At that time, the skills required to run the business are very not are, are quite different than they are to start the business. And so, the founders' contributions, in many cases, either need to get minimized or do get minimized. The, the successful companies and the successful founders often will say, "You know what? I don't have what it takes to be able to be a an executive and a manager." I'm the ideas guy. I love being chief cook and bottle washer. But in terms of setting up the structure around an accounting system and an HR system and a uh, you know, an operating system, I don't have that. So the businesses that you know the the founder groups, you know, to your point, who recognize that that is a that's a logical point of evolution in any business is that the skills required to take the business further change. And the good businesses, the good founders, will recognize that and they will back to your, your original point, they will say, we need to find somebody else to do this. And by the way, we also need to make sure that that person has the same sort of economic incentives we do as shareholders and will actually allocate some shares to those new executives. So that's a great point. And it, I think, brings us back to the founder share issue. So, you know, we talked about how you issue founder shares. You're in a you're forming the company, you're in a and launch phase, and then you start to bring on other execs. Maybe it's a maybe nobody on your team is really a salesperson, for example, and so you bring a salesperson right. on. What happens to your founder shares? Do you issue these new people on your team founder shares, or do you usually issue them some other kind of share? And talk about some of those considerations. Yeah, good good question. And and founder shares is sort of an easy thing to to hang your hat on as a concept, which is to say it's the initial shares issued by a company when it's formed. But again, typically they're common shares. And so you will often issue common shares to other executives too, either in the form of, of direct shares or in the form of options. And that's probably another show in its entirety. But the impact of bringing on new executives or new team members is, particularly if you are going to, if the, if the company and the founders agree that that new team member should be also a, an equity holder or a shareholder as they are, maybe, maybe less shares than the founders have, but some point, is that will end up diluting, reducing the ownership interests of all the other parties. So for sake of argument, if you have three founders who each own a third of the company. By definition, they each own 33 and a third percent of the shares. If you decide to hire a professional 
as you said, a professional business development person or a professional finance person, and you say that individual should get 5% or make the math easy, that person should get 10% of the company. So now, going forward, you have four shareholders, one of whom owns 10%, and the other three founders now own a 30% stake. So the impact of this is all, it's, it's dilutive, is the, is the buzzword, on the ownership interests of the founders. And, and many founders get anxious about that, about giving up part of their ownership interest to other people who will help move the business forward. My catchy buzzword is, do you want to own a slice of a watermelon or 100% of a grape? And, and the answer, you know, which is the, the, the cute way of saying, your goal here is to make this business as valuable as possible right. and so right. that your piece of the business is as valuable as possible. And unless you are able to attract talent and give those talent a piece of your interest in the business, you're going to stay at grape size. So, Really, really great advice. So when you're trying to figure out how to allocate these shares, so you're, you're the founder or you're part of a small team of founders, and you want to keep control of the company. You know, there are going to be a lot of people who are like, I want some shares in the company. I'll give you some cash to, to, to help you through a tight time, but I want some shares. Or I will do this service for you, some development work, because I know you don't really have cash. I'll take shares in the company. So everybody wants some shares in the company usually, but what are some things the founders need to think about in terms of figuring out how much to give them? Yeah, that's a that's a, another really good question. That's your 17th good question in a row, Doris. The, um, probably the most important thing to think about is value. And, and so you are attempting, when you give somebody shares, you give somebody equity for their contribution. You know, if that contribution is, is money or that contribution is, as you said, time or services, you, you are trying to value those uh, money is probably easy to value, but but value that time or those services, and that will lead you to say, well, what is a fair number of shares to give to that person in exchange for what they are giving the company, and that gets into a really interesting set of discussions about what is the value of the company and therefore what is the value of the shares. So in, then, in a simple way, sorry, go ahead. I think that's a whole interesting set of discussions in itself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in my experience, what happens is often is the people contributing maybe don't get enough of a percent because the founders think that this cool idea, even though it maybe isn't generating really much revenue or any net profit, thinks it's worth, you know, $20 bazillion, right? And yep. if you paid the money to actually have it valued, it might be worth two. And so when you give people shares for work that they've done, you know, I think it's something to think about from the flip side. When you're giving money to a startup company to help out your brother-in-law or whatever, or you're giving sweat equity to a company to think about. Because I, I sure see yeah. that happen yep. a lot. No, it's a great point. And, and, you know, we, in fact, we were introduced to a company the other day, which is, I don't, I want to say there's somewhere between five and $10 million in revenue. And I think they are at the stage where they're, they're at or near being cash flow positive. And so 
they would like to raise money, they would like to find investors to help them grow even faster. But they're in a situation where they can be fairly choosy and in a strong negotiating position about what the value of those shares is, you know, how much they should cost, which is different than a situation, and you've seen some of these, where a company has three weeks of money left, they need to raise capital. Well, the negotiating position of the investor in that point is, is enormous, and therefore they can decide how much of the business they will get in exchange for whatever capital they put in. So different different dynamics led by different really different negotiating situations and and different uh, stages of the company's life and and uh, financial health so i think you you've really articulated some of the things that founders need to think through as they're setting up a company but if you've already set up your company and been operating for a while can you still give yourself founder shares um, the answer is uh, is a definite maybe. Uh, it's, uh, it, it really depends upon what your corporate documents say. So in most cases, it, well, many of the companies we deal with, they uh, we, we will encourage them and we will help them to set up an equity incentive pool, an option pool, if you will, and and that has a, a fixed number of, of shares that the the directors of the company can uh, can play with, if you will. In most cases, issuing shares is a decision that is only made by the shareholders. So back to your founder's point, if you have three founders, it will take a majority, it will take two, uh, if they each own a third, to decide how to issue shares. And so the founders can decide to issue themselves shares. Now, in cases where there are three shareholders so that two of them don't gang up on the third, you know, we, we advise them to put in structures where everybody has a chance to participate in this, those new share issuances. But the short answer is all of those things can be fixed. All of those things can be resolved. They will take some level of approval and consent by the shareholders. And, again, depending upon who owns, you know, back to your first point, who owns what part of the business will determine who is in a situation to decide what can and can't happen with respect to new shares. How does your firm go about counseling businesses and help them add value? So there are a number of mechanical points. We've talked about some of those in terms of setting up businesses. A lot of what we spend our time doing and what I spend my time doing is is sitting down and trying to understand both what the common objectives are relative to you know the, the group of investors or that group of entrepreneurs I should say who are who are driving the business forward you know, how much capital they will need and who is going to do what. So when we first start off helping entrepreneurs, if they're at the business establishment stage, you know, it's really who's going to have control, who's going to have the, the, the governance, uh, the, you know, decision-making and, and, and the ability to make uh, take fundamental actions on the part of the company, and then who's going to contribute what and therefore have a, a greater ownership interest. Sometimes those two are related, Doris, not always. So we help them think through those issues or help push them toward having conversations about those, those issues is probably what we do most for early-stage companies. You know, as they get going, a lot of the work we do is in putting in place some basic processes. And, and I used to use, use the word you know, corporate hygiene all the time. Is You guys want to have really good corporate hygiene today because at some point down the road, somebody's going to want to come by you 
if they do due diligence, which they will, you know, that is the ultimate, you know, corporate proctology exam. The, 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 the time that they have to spend figuring out what you did at the early stage is going to hurt your value. So we make sure that there are good corporate records. We, we help them make sure that they have the right equity incentive plans in place. We make sure that they have the right human resources plans, that they have confidentiality agreements and non-solicitation agreements and invention assignment agreements in place for everybody who works there. So the company is as protected as possible. Again, on the assumption that the end point for these companies, these businesses, is going to be they're going to get acquired by a larger company for some large amount of money, hopefully. So that's that's a lot of what we do. And then we do obviously do a lot of commercial agreement work and, again, financing work and stuff like that. You, you raise a great point. I mean, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of people and heavily weighted on the idea side of the business. But you're absolutely right. Even if you're just raising money from, you know, small angel investors or seed money from a innovation fund, the fact that you've put the time and effort into making the company look professional speaks an enormous amount about just the caliber of the, the company and the thought that's gone into it, I think, right? Well, and, and the caliber of the people. Because, as, and again, many of the companies we work with either are or have aspirations to be funded by or have investors that come from the outside. And I think what often gets lost among founders is the notion that if they have a great idea and if they build it, they will come, Right. Whereas if you talk to professional investors and, you know, having spent a little bit of time in that arena, they are, you know, the, the idea is great, the technology is great, the market is great. They spend most of their time and energy confirming that the right people are involved. Wow. And so the homework that is done up front in making sure that you show that you have the ability to run a successful company is really, and so that gets back to all the, you know, all, all the corporate hygiene stuff we, we talked about. That's what really gets the attention, the positive attention of a an outside investor. I you hope know. all of you entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs are, are listening to that and absorb that because what he's basically telling you is that some of this stuff that you may think of as legal mumbo-jumbo that you can put off for another day is essential and can make or break whether your business gets funded or not. It's my, my second, you know, you know, slice of a watermelon or all of a grape is, is uh, you know, in, investors bet on the jockey and not the horse. Uh, so the jockeys <laughs> Words make Words of wisdom. Well, <laughs> that's, that's all the time we have for today. Tom, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It was really fun to, uh, to, to get your perspectives and hear some of the stories and your sage advice that comes from lots of different kinds of jobs in the marketplace. So, again, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Doris. And that's our show for this week. I want to thank everybody for listening. This has been Doris Nago with The Savvy Entrepreneur. You can find helpful information and resources on my law website, forsythialaw.com, or my consulting website, which is globalocityservices.com. You'll find there a library of blogs, tools, podcasts, and all kinds of other resources for businesses. And finally, don't forget to email me with any questions, challenges, topics, 
or just to shoot the breeze. I'd love to hear from you. Nagel at lakesradio.org. Now, be sure to join us next Saturday when our guest will be the founder of the UW-Madison Badger Alumni Venture Fund called Bascom Ventures. We'll be talking with Greg Baker about what they look for when they fund small and startup companies and why alumni-based funding might be an option if you're looking for funding for your business, as well as if you're interested in investing, how you can maybe invest in what could be the next Google or Amazon. Until then, happy entrepreneurship.